0: Today on the Beginner Photography Podcast.
1: Where if you photograph one person, it's mildly interesting. If you photograph identical twins, somehow that's amazing. Wow. Like repetition is something that I always look for in photography and I think is really fascinating and, and, and is really a, a good way to make a compelling image is, you know, if you can have one or something, two is better.
0: Welcome to the Beginner Photography Podcast. Today we're talking all about long-term photo projects. So let's get into it.
1: Welcome to the Beginner Photography Podcast, a weekly podcast for those who believe that moments matter most and that a beautiful photo is more than just a sum of its settings. A show for those who want to do more with the gear they have to take better photos today. And now, your host, Raymond Hatfield.
0: Welcome back, my photo friends, to this episode of the Beginner Photography Podcast. As always, I'm your host, Raymond Hatfield, and today we have a Massive interview for you today. It is one that I have uh, been looking forward to for quite a while uh, and one that I know that a lot of you are going to enjoy as well. It is with photographer, uh, photojournalist Scott Strasanti, and he, oh my gosh, he has more than 30 years of experience uh, working for like big publications. I'm talking like the Chicago Tribune, the San Francisco Chronicle, and what he does is he goes out on assignments he works right and over time he has built up this massive library of of images and the reason why I reached out to him today was because he is kind of like the king of long-term projects right from and you're going to hear it in this interview as well he's going to share some ideas with you for what you can be doing for long-term projects and how you can be taking better photos but this is this is a long interview this is one that um you know, I try to prepare for every interview as best as I can. Uh, You know, and as a host, I got to come up with some ideas and questions. And I came up with about a dozen questions to ask. And then Scott, as you know, the the master that he is, uh, just starts talking and I could just listen forever. And I think that I only get off like two or three questions. (laughs) And he just, uh, you know, continues to share his knowledge uh, and education with you, the listeners of the podcast. So I mean, this is one that This has got to be one of my favorite episodes uh, that I've recorded in the entire 240-some-odd episodes of the podcast, and I really hope that you are going to enjoy it as well. So with that, let's go ahead and just get on into this interview with Scott Strasante. Scott, you know, you are a photojournalist with 35 years of shooting assignments for – Major publications obviously the uh the Chicago Tribune, currently with the San Francisco Chronicle. your work has been recognized the world over you've won awards you've published books. Can you tell me about before all of this right? Can you tell me about some of your earliest memories with a camera?
1: Um, I think the reason I'm a photographer today is because when I was a child um, we my family we would go on summer car trips so it would be my two older sisters my parents and then my mom's parents so there'd be seven of us in a uh, country squire station wagon and we would oh. we would plan during the winter where we were going to go and there'd always be two three week trips we'd leave from chicago we'd get in the station wagon and and drive to say arizona and back and stop at all our little tourist destinations on the way and we did that probably for maybe seven, eight years until my sisters got really old and they didn't want to hang out with us anymore. <laughs> um, but in those seven years, we made it to all 48 contiguous United States, the lower provinces of Canada. And so I got to see the entire country, you know, through the, the windshield of the station wagon. And of course we had no seatbelts on and I was leaning up in the front seat between my parents, you know, um, but for me, just kind of watching the world go by, just, I, I had no idea that it was training me, but it just made me a visual person. It made me kind of crave seeing things. And, and my dad was a very poor photographer. He had a, a Canon eighty one film camera, which he would use occasionally. He also would do a lot of Super 8 um, videos of us at the swimming pool, at motels and stuff. Uh, so he was interested in, in photography a little bit, but really never kind of took it anywhere. He was a, a tire dealer. He owned a tire dealership on the south side of Chicago. So it was just kind of looking through the car window and also my family, we were big sports fans. Uh, We would get season tickets to white Sox games and bears games. And, and we would sometimes travel to the super bowl or the all-star game. Um, So I was used to being at sporting events and I was a big sports fan. So that kind of led to me subscribing to sports illustrated magazine. So I would start putting up um, the covers and, you know, some of the inside photos on my wall. And, of course, I had this, the swimsuit issue on the other wall and my Farrah Fawcett poster. But, you know, but I was really into sports photography. And I never once thought of, of, of it as a career. Um, I didn't really have much forward thought of what I was going to do. Um, I guess I kind of figured I was going to be a tire dealer like my dad and just kind of take over the family business. Um, so I would occasionally um, borrow my dad's camera when we would go to sporting events. And I would take photos from the seats and then I would take them to, you know, Walgreens or whatever at the time and get prints made. And in a five by seven print, the action was probably a half inch by a half inch. That's so small, and, yeah. And I remember cutting out those little quarter inch by half inch pictures and putting them in photo albums. And <laughs> and you know, and, and for you know, and, and it was really funny because when my dad first gave me the camera, I said, Well, how do you use this? He said, This is all you need to know. Always shoot between F eight and F11. That's what he told me. He's like make <laughs> Indoors. Sure, yep. He said, make sure that needle is always between F8 and F11. I'm like, okay. So no matter what I shot, where I was at, I was always, you know, between F8 and F11. It didn't matter if it was like, you know, a half second exposure or one thousandth of a second. It was just, that's what dad told me. Wow. And it seriously took me probably four or five years to realize that I wasn't you know I didn't have to stay between those two F-stops and and so it was pretty funny um that you know he had such a minimal knowledge of photography and um and then I, you know, I went to college to be a business major and the first year I decided to work at the school newspaper and it just you know I shot a couple of sporting events but I wasn't really that interested in it so I kind of quit. Um and I just kind of went out with my business degree. And then junior year of college at Ripon College in Ripon, Wisconsin Um, I walked by our art gallery and there was a a photojournalism show being put up. And, and we, there was an opening night with um, the photographer. His name was Paul Giroux. He was a Chicago Tribune photographer at the time. And I walked in and I saw his work and it was, it was like a a photo story of an old, I remember a lot of pictures. And this was, you know, 35, 40 years ago. And, you know, it was, um, a story on a, an old priest that was all hunched over. There was a photo from St. Francis to Sales High School football game, which was right by where I grew up. And, you know, there were a couple other photos. And for some reason, I was like, yes, this is what I want to do with my life. This is what I want to do with my career. So I walked over to Paul and, you know, really kind of said, Mr. Giroux, uh, I want to do what you do. You know, I kind of was expecting him to give me the secret recipe of how to become right. a photographer, you know, <laughs> and he was kind of like, well, you know, you need to find your own path. And I was like, how am I going to find my own path? I'm in the middle of Wisconsin. You know, there's nothing but cows and bars up here, you know. And and so he kind of said, well, when I was at Ripon, I went to an urban studies program in Chicago, and I had an internship at, at Donnelly Publishing. So I was like, okay, I'll do that. So even though I grew up in Chicago, I went my first semester senior year and spent um, – Um, the semester in Chicago and and I ended up getting an internship at the city of Chicago photo department when Harold Washington the first African mayor of Chicago was um, in office and it was amazing that photo department they had like six or seven staff photographers they were just brilliant they just were one like they had so many great skills and great um, content to shoot. And they didn't really let me shoot much. I think they let me go out two days and actually take photographs. But most of the time I was making prints for them or cutting their negatives. Um, And so it was just for me, my first real experience at actual, you know, photojournalism. Um, And so then I went back to Ripon my second year and finished off my arts and business major. There was no photo classes at Ripon. And then I um, got out of college and you know, naively sent out a resume, a cover letter and like some bad art photos and, and sports photos from the seats to all the newspapers in the Midwest. I sent it to the Tribune, the Sun-Times, um, the Madison newspaper, the Milwaukee Journal, Sentinel. Um, you know, and a couple other smaller papers, and and one guy from the Milwaukee Journal, Irv Gebhardt, um, wrote me and said, "Hey, you want to come up and show me your work?" And I was like, "Absolutely!" So I drove up to Milwaukee, and and Irv and another photographer looked at my work, and he was like, "Oh, you know, you know, really kindly, was like, you have looks like you have a really good eye. You know, you just need some more experience. You know, here's the name, John H. White. He's a Pulitzer Prize-winning photographer in Chicago. He teaches a class at Columbia College." why don't you give him a call and take his class? I'm like, okay. So I call John and, you know, amazingly John like picks up, you know, the number I call and I didn't know who he was at the time. Um, but they look him up. John H. White. Amazing. And, uh, so I talked to John. He's like, well, tell me about what, you, what you're, you've done so far. And I gave him a little background of what I photographed. He's like, mm, you know, you can't really take my class unless you have a portfolio. So you're going to have to take photo one and darkroom one at Columbia College. I'm like, okay. So I enrolled in Columbia College. Um, all the time I was still working for my dad um, at his tire dealership. And um, I got halfway through this photo one class. And all of a sudden, I got a call from a tiny newspaper called the Daily Calumet. It was on the southeast side of Chicago. It was actually the, the neighborhood newspaper of where I grew up. And they um, had me come in, and they asked me two questions. They said, Scott, do you know how to use a flash? And I was like, yes. And I didn't, you know. And they said, Scott, do you know how to roll your own film? I'm like, oh, yes, I do, you know. And, and back in the day, they would buy bulk bulk rolls of 35 millimeter film and you'd have to go in the dark room and roll them into the little 36 exposure Mm -hmm. um, kind of containers. And, and so they hired me. It was like a part-time 16 hours a week at $4 and 25 cents. Yep. That was golden. And uh, I told my, my dad and my grandfather that I was going to be a professional photographer. And my dad's like, Oh, thank God. You know, my grandfather's like, I'm disinheriting you. You know, it was just like, it was so opposite. My grandfather was so mad. I wasn't taking over the family business. And my, my dad was like, Oh, please just go, go do something you love, you know, don't be stuck in this family business like I was. And and so, um, you know, I started at, at the daily Calumet and, and was, you know, learned by making mistakes. And I thought I was good. I had this, you know, you know, confidence, but I really wasn't looking back at the images. And, and luckily that first year, um, I, um, you know, kind of learn some stuff. and then that paper got bought out by a bigger paper and it kind of set me on my way, kind of step laddering up. and and so it was kind of one of those things where I kind of fell forward a lot and and throughout my whole career, you know, I've always been open to things coming and taking advantage of situations and and not really doing much pre-planning, but it definitely was, you know, luck that I kind of got into the business and was in the right place at the right time and, and and a lot of people helped me on the way and and so, you know, that's kind of a little bit of a, you know, the whole journey of me getting into the business.
0: <laughs> but, but you make it sound as if like, oh, it just kind of happened and yet here you are, you know, as I mentioned in, in your intro there, like, you're very accomplished. This isn't something that you just kind of do because this is what you fell into. You clearly strive for greatness to be able to capture images that uh, uh, that you love and that you find compelling. And now today, obviously, you know, 35 years later, you have the technical knowledge. You can go out there and you can shoot w- what you visualize, right? Mm-hmm. But yeah. I still want to go back to those early days, right? And when you had the camera and, you know, your dad says, "Keep it between 8 and 11 and then you're gold." Not all of those photos, as you said, you know, they're not going to turn out good. Right? What was it that kind of kept you going? Because today, as a lot of photographers get photos that they're not immediately happy with, the camera's fault, or you know, they get very bored of it easy, or they get easily bored of it. How do you? How did you uh, push forward and 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 learn what? Well, the I, issue think,
1: was? I think I think a lot of it was naivete because, um, like. I think one of the advantages I had, and and I'm not denigrating um, photo J schools or photography instruction. I'm just saying is I didn't realize that I I wasn't good, you know? Like I didn't go to Western Kentucky or Ohio University or some college that was a photojournalism factory and have a professor tell me, you're bad, this sucks, this is horrible, this is no good, don't do this, don't do that, you can't do this, you know? And, And so I wasn't raised photographically in a negative way. And I think a lot of the problems with um, portfolio reviews and, 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 and photo schools is that it, it's kind of like they, they see your work and they criticize it. And, and some people, it, that that really motivates them. Me, no. When I'm criticized, I roll up in a little ball. And, you know. So I think if I would have been exposed to people criticizing, critiquing my work at an early age, I probably wouldn't have, um, you know, kind of thrived because, you know, to get on the psychologist's um, I was the youngest of three kids. My sisters, you know, were a little bit of rebels. My parents didn't pay much attention to me because I was a good kid. I just kind of followed the rules and, and, you know, did my homework and got A's and things like that. And so I didn't get a lot of attention. And so when I finally found something, photography, where people, who weren't knowledgeable about it, but saw my work and thought it was good. That just, you know, really kind of fueled my fire was, oh, I'm good at something. Here's something I'm good at. And and so it was kind of, you know, that drive to, you know, create work that people like, you know, really helped me along with, you know, people encouraging me. And, you you know, I did have some sort of natural ability at it. I don't know how that works exactly, how you become good at something. And other people become good at something else, but I did definitely. It's something that works for me, and I think of it. You know, especially in photojournalism, it's a lot about personality. It's a lot about coming into someone's life, making them comfortable with you quickly, and then kind of being uh, be able to kind of be involved with their life, but also step back and let them live their lives. and And so that you know was kind of something that I already kind of had because um, I just. You know, always been an observer. I've always been a little bit shy and quiet, and I've always just watched the world. And even up to now, unless I'm really comfortable um, with people, I'll be very quiet and and just kind of you know not really involve myself. But if someone in- involves me in a conversation, I'm more than happy to to, to talk. But you know, I, I'm not someone who kind of interjects myself into a situation. So I think you know one of the the things that really helped me also early on was. I studied other people's photography and I studied my own photography. You know, I learned that I would look at my own work and I would say, well, where does my, you know, I didn't have this, this kind of language then at the time. Um, I didn't know what I was doing, but now I know what I was doing was I would kind of look at an image and say, where does my eye go? You know, what, you know, does it go to something it should go to, or is it going to a flaw in the image? And and you know, I learned that the brightest spot of an image is usually you where your eye goes first. And and then you can kind of learn to control in your photography in a split section, split second, you know, how to compose an image that is pleasing to look at, that allows the viewer to enter into it, look at it, kind of spend some time, move around in a very kind of you know easy way, and then kind of exit out of the photo. And and I I think I learned that by studying. Um, the masters of photography and art and and just kind of soaking in what they did and then not really to copy what they did but just to kind of be inspired by it Um, back when i started out um there was a two major photo contests in the photojournalism world there was world press photo and there was pictures of the year which was based at university of missouri and columbia and you would enter the contest and win or lose, and I would always lose. They would send you a book of the winners, at the, you know, at the you know every year. And when I got that poi book, I would just go page through page through it all and study all the photographs. And you know, it wasn't the best because sometimes I would see, oh, first place sports action this year was a rodeo photo, so I'd be like, oh, I need to shoot more rodeo. And then the next year, you know, first place in news was, you know. Was a fire and I'd be like, Oh wait, I need to get a scanner and shoot more fires, you know? And so, you know, it was kind of, I was kind of chasing things, but it also gave me kind of a little bit of direction and things like that. And um, so, it, you know, it, it definitely, you know, was a multitude of things I think that helped me grow as a, as a person and a photographer. And, you know, at the time, you know, I was shooting black and white film and developing them in the dark room and making my own prints And that that I think was educational at the time Um, because I really, through my 35 years in the business, it's amazing technologically where things have come from. You know, it's come from rolling my own film, black and white in a dark room, to now – you know, photographing, you know, with my phone sometimes and putting a photo on Instagram and having someone in Japan like it one minute later. You know, it's yeah. just like compared <laughs> to when I started out, the only time you'd see my photographs is if you subscribed to my small paper or I brought it to your house and showed it to you. you know? <laughs> so, you know, it, 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 it's amazing kind of how my career has spanned this technological leap. But at the same time, I am really not interested in technology. I'm not a camera gearhead. I'm not someone who, um, you know, I've been lucky to have the best photo equipment because I work at big newspapers and they supply it to you. But I don't like getting a new camera because I think the key for anyone who's a photographer is you have to learn your camera well enough that you forget forget it. You know, so you have to, you know, know how the settings work to be able to kind of change the settings on the fly. But just to forget about the technology of it and just concentrate on making images and 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 that's why you know you always hear these people oh the new sony's coming out i need to get that because that's going to make me now i'm going to be a good photographer oh wait no canon now is a new mirrorless i got to get that because now i'm going to be a good photographer and it's not you know it's the same thing about like a, you know a chef where it doesn't matter usually what they're cooking on Of course, they probably have the best stoves or the best ovens or the best, you know, things, but they could, you know, get an easy bake oven and make magic out of it just because, you know, they kind of understand the process. And it's the same thing with photography where, you know, the gear doesn't really matter, you know, of course you know, it's coming from someone who has the best gear but yeah.
0: <laughs> i know yeah that's always uh that's always an argument that uh, new photographers have it's like well it's easy to say that when you have the best gear but mm-hmm. you didn't always have the best gear and as you just yeah. said you know i mean when you started 35 years ago you had to roll your own film you didn't just go to the store and buy a roll you yeah it was much cheaper to buy that roll of 400 foot and then just roll it yourself and make a bunch of uh, uh, yeah. canisters and those it, early
1: digital cameras were horrible you know, oh like my god! Nikon, gosh. Nikon D1H and D2H, and you know, just tiny, tiny, tiny file sizes. You know, here's your 256 megabyte card. Yeah, <laughs> you know, this will this will last you thousands of images. You know, it is crazy. That's funny. I was just thinking the other day
0: when I um when I uh, I told you before we started recording that I went to school for cinematography and I had graduated in 2000 and. Uh, eight right when there was a writer strike and an actor strike so there was absolutely no work going on and i thought i gotta buy a dslr to keep my skills sharp and i was so excited because i think they just came out with like a two gigabyte cf card and i was like <laughs> i don't think i'll ever have to buy another card like how many photos can you fit on that thing this is exactly
1: <laughs> literally like a
0: hundred rolls of film on this little two gigabyte card right that here that's fantastic uh Going back to uh, when you first started at the – you said it was the Daily Calumet. Is that right? Yes, yes. So when you had started at the Daily Calumet, um, it sounded like – You took the job not being fully confident that you could do the job, but that you were willing to learn uh, with that real world experience, which uh, I love. And I don't think that enough people actually do that and, you know, take that leap of faith. Um, But surely there were some things that you had to learn on your own when it came to photography. Uh, What were some of those earliest challenges that you had when you showed up uh, in situations that you were just kind of thrown into? Was there anything that you weren't prepared for that you had to figure out? Remember, mastering photography settings is a journey and this guide is your first step and the perfect resource to guide you towards finding the right settings for your style. So grab your copy today at perfectcamerasettings.com and start your journey to better photos.
1: Yeah, well, like I... I only wanted to be a photographer at the time because of sports. I wanted to work for sports illustrated. So, you know, for me, I just wanted to go to the daily Calumet so I could shoot high school, high school sporting events, you know, and then luckily in one year, when we, when it got bought out by the daily South town, which is a bigger paper, then I was able to shoot professional sporting events, which was crazy. So I had to kind of learn, you know, to photograph other things and, you know, we would have to do, I think my first assignment was go find a photo, go find a feature photo. And I got a snowball fight and, and I was afraid of people. So I would like literally be shooting from behind bushes, you know, and, (laughs) and, and be so afraid to ask someone for their name. And, And so to, to approach someone and say, hi, I'm from the newspaper. I took your photo. Can I get your name? Was something that still panics me to this day sometimes. And, and so kind of learning to to not just be an observer, but have to involve myself in someone else's life, a stranger who might say no, you know, and that was always traumatic. And, and I also was not very professional. The, the newspaper, um, it didn't publish on Saturdays. So like if you would shoot an assignment on Friday, you know, it probably wouldn't make the newspaper at all, or maybe, you know, and so I would sometimes get a couple of assignments on a Saturday And I would, I hate to say this, I I would just go up to my college, my friends and party and just blow off the assignments, you know, and then (laughs) come back on Monday and make some excuse that, oh, I screwed it up in the dark room. And they'd be like, okay, no, well, accidents happen, you know, and and so, like I didn't have a great professional work ethic at the time. I was more interested in continuing my college years, but. You know once i got to the daily south town a year later that that went out the window i couldn't do that anymore so i guess you know that first year was a really low stress environment the newspaper was kind of sh- and it was all young people my age anyways and so we weren't you know that that concerned about the quality but you know the, the funny thing was the the editor who hired me his name was bob bong and uh you know and so i always joked that he you know he was you know i his bong a little bit too much to hire me, um, but the the guy who really helped me was J T Smith. He was the photo editor at the time, and he taught me how to use a flash, and he taught me how to roll film, and you know he kind of really you know ha- held my hand as I you know and, and helped me out on assignments. That I really wasn't used to. Um, so it was just kind of learning to be a photojournalist instead of just a sports photographer, I think was my first big transition. Um, and then to actually do a long term photo story or spend time with a person like that, seriously, I did not get comfortable with that for like at least twelve years. You know, it was like something, um, when I went to the Daily South Town, I spent 11 years there and I, I rarely did like any long term stories. It was mostly just event coverage, um, news events, sports events and, and weather photos and things like that. So, you know, it wasn't until the late 90s when I really got interested in actually spending time with one person and doing a long term story. and And that is, you know, I think... Was the next big leap in my career was just going from being a photographer to a photojournalist and and then to a storyteller, um, and and that kind of you just kind of takes time, at least for me it did. Some other people, you know, are more comfortable spending time with strangers, but um, you know now it's something I can do easily. But in the beginning, just kind of being timid was something I really had to overcome. <laughs>
0: Hey, Raymond here, and we will get back to today's show in just a moment. Do you know what all of the world's top photographers have in common? No, they don't all shoot with the same camera or use the same lens, but they all edit their photos. Now, I'm not talking full digital manipulations, but more subtle visual signatures. That is how you create your own unique style. Are your images living up to their full potential, or do they fall flat? Well. Let me help breathe life into your images by giving you 52 of my favorite Lightroom presets, absolutely free, over at freephotographypresets.com. Again, that is freephotographypresets.com. Don't miss out. Okay, back to today's interview. Well, let's, let's go ahead and talk about that then because uh, as you know, um, the reason why I reached out to you, I was actually introduced to you through uh, a friend of mine, uh, Vinny Puglisi. Do you know that? Sure. yeah. Okay, yeah. yes, yes, yes. Uh, so uh, we were talking, and he was talking about some of the great photographers who he had known, and he brought up you. And I remember, obviously your name stood out to me, and I was like, I wrote down your name, and I was like, i got to get him on the podcast one day. So I just very recently checked you out and was like, oh my gosh, your long-term project Called Common Ground, it it blew me away. It stood out to me. So before we dive into that, um, can you give me like the thirty thousand foot overview, elevator pitch of
1: what Common Ground is before we before we dive deeper into it? Okay, so Common Ground is a decades long study of a piece of land, um, thirty five miles southwest of Chicago, in a town called Lockport, Illinois. And when I first um, started photographing there in 1994, um, the land was a cattle farm and it was owned by Harlow Cagwin, who at the time was 71 years old and his wife, Jean, who was 62 at the time. They didn't have any children. They were, um, I think it was a 135 acre ranch. They had 40 head of Angus beef cattle and they raised um, the cattle and sold them to McDonald's um, for hamburgers. And um so the story started out just as, as me hanging out with the Caguins. Um nineteen ninety-four I was assigned at the Daily Southtown to photograph Jean and Harlow for two hours. Um it was a story on people who raised animals in Homer Township, which was the this kind of rural community outside of the Daily Southtown kind of coverage area. And so I went in the afternoon and Harlow was tending to his cattle and Gene was there feeding them. And and so I just kind of hung out for a couple hours and, you know, just made the same photographs I did every other day. Just a very quick glimpse of what someone does, um, not who they are, but what they do. And for some reason, as I was leaving the farm, being a city kid, I just kind of reflexively said, hey, can I come back and visit again? You know, can I come back and take some more photographs? Not for the newspaper, just because, you know, this is a really interesting place because the farm was was ramshackle. The barns were falling down. You know, Harlow was seven years old, you know, just kind of was, the you know, just out there throwing hay around. It was just amazing to me. And so they're like, sure, come by whenever you want. And, And so over the next maybe two, three years, Um, I would go visit, um, Jean and Harlow and most times I would show up on the farm. They'd be like, Oh, Scott's here. And so Harlow would come in and we'd sit in the kitchen and Jean would make dessert. And I would sit there and just kind of chat with Jean and Harlow. And then maybe I'd take a couple photographs and then I would leave. And, and then, um, my daughter was born in 1995 when she was a couple years old I would bring her out to the farm to show her the cows and there were a lot of farm cats and and so it was just kind of like I was a family friend you know and and I started you know you know not really it almost I stopped photographing really it was just kind of they were just my friends and I would go visit and occasionally I'd take photographs but then in 1998 um, I got a job at a paper in Joliet, Illinois which was um, a suburb a big suburb of Chicago um, and they had a newspaper the Herald News which was one of the great photojournalism's papers of the time. There was a string of papers around the Chicago area in Joliet, Aurora, Elgin, and Waukegan. It was called the Copley Newspapers. And and for some reason, they became this photojournalism hotbed, and all these young photographers would come and, and do great work there and, and move on to bigger papers. And, and I, I wasn't a young photographer then. I was in my mid mid 30s um, but i was you know kind of a late bloomer i guess in the photojournalism world so i got hired in Joliet and when i was the daily cell town we didn't do any photo stories but at the herald news day one they're like what photo stories you're going to work on what ideas do you have do you have any ideas for long-term photo stories and I'm like uh I know this this farm couple you know and maybe I could you know and I could do a story in this farm couple and they're like okay and, you know then they were kind of like great another farm story you know because <laughs> in photojournalism you know going to a farm and photographing a farm is just like you know photo 101 everyone does it and so um, in '98, so this was, you know, I, I started, you know, I went to visit Gene Harlow, and I was like, "Hey, Gene, I work at this newspaper, and they want to do a story on you, or I want to photograph you for a story." So when I come visit next time, can we maybe not sit down in the kitchen and just eat and talk? Can I maybe just actually photograph you doing your life? And I'm like, okay, that's fine. And so then I, then in 1998, I really started seriously photographing them. And, and Harlow at the time, you know, his body started deteriorating. He had carpal tunnel syndrome. He had asthma and, you know, he was really struggling. Um, Jean had just gone through about a cancer. And so she was slowed a little bit. And so, you could really tell in the photographs, especially with Harlow, just how difficult the job was. And, and there were rumors of, of farms in the area were being sold. So there were rumors that, that Harlow was gonna sell his farm at some point. And, and so the story was kind of the days in the life of a cattle farmer, but also um, you know disappearing family farms and suburban sprawl were kind of issues that were kind of being brought into the story. And so I just kind of photographed Harlow and Jean's daily life Um, it ran a couple times in the newspaper, um, nothing much, but for some reason, um, I decided that I wanted to retain ownership of the images, which is something in newspapers, the newspaper owns all the photos you take. They have the copyright. And, but for some reason, I don't know how this happened. I decided that, you know, I was going to work on this story on my free time. And at the time I was a single dad, my kids were like six and four. And so the only time I could really go was on a Monday when I was off on Monday and my kids were in daycare and kindergarten or whatever. And so I pretty much would just visit the farm every Monday. And I allowed the newspaper to kind of use my images um, whenever they wanted for stories. But it was kind of my personal project. And, um, you know, as time went on, they, you know, did sell their farm and they got offers from people. And so I started photographing them leaving the farm and, and auctioning off their cattle. And the the subdivision developer that bought their farm actually started building the subdivision around their farm while they were still farming. And so, so their farm was kind of shrinking and like the model homes were way off in one corner and they were leveling off all the topsoil and everything and other parts of it. And so by 2000, And, um, one, while they were still on the farm, I switched to the Chicago Tribune. I got a job there. Um, I had one national newspaper photographer of the year for my work in 2000, which one of the stories was on Jean and Harlow, um, you know, and so the Chicago Tribune hired me. And so when I got to the Chicago Tribune and I said, Hey, I'm, I've been working on this story for the past seven years. Um, I was wondering, you know, if I can retain ownership, you know, I would like to continue to work on it here. And so the the paper agreed. And so then, you know, I photographed those final days on the farm. And on July 2nd, 2002, um, Gene and Harlow, you know, they were supposed to leave the farm Months earlier, but it's because they needed to kind of knock down their house so they could continue to build the subdivision, but it just took Gene and Harlow forever to get out of there. So the subdivision, the developer was getting really anxious. So they pretty much said, "Okay, if you're you, you have to be out by July second. If not, we're going to just knock your house down with you in it." You know, of course they were they weren't serious, but sure, they were yeah. they were serious. And so um, July second, Gene and Harlow were scrambling around their house. You know, they're you know, finally they're packing up the last of their belongings. You know, one of their cats runs up in the attic and hides and, and they, had to, they had to leave it behind. And oh, no. so, yeah, so Gene and Harlow walk out of the house and Harlow goes one way, Gene goes the other. Harlow sits down on this, this big felled tree that was in the front yard and they just start tearing the house down immediately. And so Harlow's like slumped on this log. With the house just being torn down behind him, and it was just like I pre-visualized this moment for years because I knew it was going to happen eventually, but I never realized it would come together like it did. And it's probably the the image favorite is maybe the wrong word, but it's the most compelling image I think I've ever made in my career. It was just this shot of you know this old farmer, you know the house he had lived in for the past eighty years being torn down behind him. And so at that point, uh, I had photographed for eight years. Um, I thought it was a complete story. I thought I was done. It was just, you know, it was, this was my story on Gene and Harlow. And um, as, as time went on, um, I I would go back and I would visit the subdivision. It was being built. And uh, Gene and Harlow bought a new farm, not to farm, but to just live on. And they built a new house and, and they, they leased the land to another farmer. So they were living maybe two miles, two, two hours South of Chicago. On another farm and i would visit visit them occasionally but i stopped photographing them because i didn't for some reason didn't find it compelling them just kind of being um but then if, for some reason the subdivision was interesting to me so i would stop by um and photograph there there was a project called day in the life of america um it was it was um They hired 10 photographers from every 50 of all the 50 states to photograph the states. And it was a week in the life of America. I can't remember what it was. But anyways, I went to the subdivision and photographed at the subdivision for this project. And I I had this idea, well, maybe if I found a family in the subdivision and started documenting their life, somehow I could tie it in with the farm, you know, and, and just kind of, you know, the, kind of the progression of this land in suburban Chicago and so I ended up meeting a young couple and she uh, the woman was pregnant and um the the story of Jean and Harlow leaving the farm and everything had been published in Chicago Tribune magazine and this couple had seen it and they're like oh really oh yeah that's great you know and I said can I document you for you know for this for the continuation of the story and they agreed but then I never went back you know so for some reason it just, you know, I don't know if I got busy or it just didn't seem right to me. And so, you know, Harlow and Gene left in 2002. In 2002, became 2003, became 2004, became 2005. And, you know, I just kind of never really, you know, kind of went on the back burner and I, I just kind of forgot about the project. Um, and then in 2007, I was giving a talk at a, a photo college uh, called College of DuPage in suburban Chicago. And it was a, a photo class you know a mixture of teenagers and adults you know it was just kind of a regular just kind of photo class for anyone who wanted to take it and i came in and i showed my photojournalism and the final thing i showed was about 40 photos from the Cagwin story and and you know i ended it with a a couple shots of of the model homes and and a couple of their homes being built and and when my presentation was over a woman raised her hand and said hi my name's amanda I, i live in that subdivision i'm like oh really she's like yeah and at that point i was like this is you know, this is they coming to me, you know, this is uh-huh. the story returning to me. And so I said, Can I come visit you and, and photograph you? And she was like, Absolutely. Um, and so I showed up on their cul-de-sac. They lived on this cul-de-sac called Cinnamon Court. And they lived at the end of the cul-de-sac and, and Amanda was uh, married to a man named Ed. They had four children. Three of them were triplets and they had a dog that looked like a cow. This big black dog and and so the first day I was there, um it was a uh, a cul-de-sac wide easter egg hunt so every family and their kids were out there and and so i just kind of said hi my name's scott i'm from chicago tribune i did a story on the farm that used to be you know where the subdivision is now and and i want to do a photo story on this cul-de-sac. That was my first idea. Was I'm going to do the entire cul-de-sac? So I was wondering if I could just come and photograph on the cul-de-sac whenever I can. And and the entire thing. Yep. Great. 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 So I could just show up at any hour. You know, photograph people's kids running around without being thought of as a creep. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and so so then I just started, and I really had no idea how it was going to kind of work with the farm part of the story. Um, so I think that my second visit. Um, um, Ed and Amanda's oldest son Ben was was playing in the yard with his cousin CJ and they had a jump rope and they were wrestling on the ground and and kind of like tying each other up with this jump rope and, and so at the time my process was I would go shoot for 3-4 hours and come back and I would edit the photos and put them in a folder because um, the first half of the farm story was on film and then when I started shooting in the subdivision at that point I just had digital cameras so it became digital and so I had this stockpile of maybe 500 farm images. Um, So that day I got back and I I started editing my subdivision photos. And I found the photo of Ben and CJ wrestling with the jump rope. And it reminded me of a photo I'd taken of Harlow wrestling with a day-old calf that had gotten loose. And and he was trying to tie it up with a rope and he fell down and the calf was on the ground and the rope. And it it was very similar to the photo of Ben and CJ. And so I decided to put the two photos together as a pairing, um, also called a diptych. And, and at that point, I'm like, yeah, this is how I can tell the story of this land. I can, I can have a photo from the farm and one from the subdivision and, and put them together as a pairing and kind of compare and contrast life on this same piece of land, two different types of life. And, and so at that point, I was able to put together like five pairings immediately. And so then every time I would go to the subdivision after that, I would either see something that reminded me of the farm or I would just look through my images from that day back through my farm photos and try to find things that were compared and and everything happened with serendipity there was no like hey amanda can you stand here and do this and like that you know it was just me observing things happening and i think there were two photos that i kind of had a pre-visualization of one i had an aerial of the, the farm and then i did an aerial of the subdivision and then i had this one photo from the second floor of um Jean's house uh, of Jean from their farmhouse. And then I like one day went up and shot out of the second floor when Amanda was, was mowing the lawn. But besides those two photos, there was really nothing when I went out there looking for a specific image, but every time I would go, I would get five or six new pairings and five or six new pairings. And so this was a March of 2007. And um, I then started, you know, putting these things together. And, and in October Uh, That year, I went and spoke at this workshop called the Mountain Workshops in Kentucky, where they bring a bunch of students in and they do photo stories.
0: There are two ways to bring home more money with your photography business. You either get more clients or you spend less of the money that you make. Cloudspot Studio helps you keep more of what you earn. With the lowest payment processing fees in the industry, the average photographer will save $300 annually. And that's just more money to invest in essential gear, like a new flash or a sweet camera bag. You know, one that is perfect for storing all of the wedding day snacks that you can pack. But it's not just about savings. CloudSpot Studio is designed to streamline your workflow. Easily organize shoots, send contracts, questionnaires, invoices. And you're really going to enjoy the hassle-free payments. So sign up for a free CloudSpot account at DeliverPhotos.com and... As a bonus, you're going to get access to my exclusive wedding and portrait contracts and questionnaires at no additional cost. Why let fees chip away at your profits? Empower your photo journey with CloudSpot and watch your business soar.
1: And um, I showed like 30 diptychs to these people and no one had ever seen this work before. And people were like holy cow this is yeah. amazing this wow this is a great story and people were like you got to show it to this person you got to show it to this person and this one guy was there um and he said i'm um, chad stevens he said you got to show this to my boss brian storm um and brian um is this photo genius who works at media storm or he founded media storm and it was a video company and so he brought me to New York and, and they ended up doing a seven minute um, kind of video piece on the project. And then I had a couple of friends that I'd known um, from, I went on this photo tour after I won Photographer of the Year with a National Geographic photographer. And I called her and pitched it to National Geographic. And she said, well, it's too specific for National Geographic, but we have this new feature called photo journal where we we give four pages to a photographer in the magazine to show a project they've been working on a long-term project and and so in the february 2008 edition national geographic i had four pages from my common ground story and and so it was just crazy how once i made that diptych connection it just kind of totally took off and it was really cute like in february or you know I went to the grocery store with the Grabenhofer family, and um, little Katie, one of the triplets, picked up National Geographic and put it on the register and told the lady behind the thing, I'm in this. And the lady's <laughs> like, Sure, you are, sweetie, sure, you are. And so it was just really, really kind of cool. And um, after that, you know, I, I worked in the subdivision, um, collecting images and making diptychs um, for, you know, maybe three more two three more years later before i turned it into a book and and i did a kickstarter campaign and raised a good amount of money and then um you know published it as a book and and that you know for for me as a photographer a book is like the 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 holy grail like that's what you want you want to have a book because it's it you know it'll last forever and you know kind of it's it's you know it's not as fleeting as the internet or the daily newspaper it's something that is very tangible and so so you know it was just one of those things where I had no idea where the project was going and it just kind of built up momentum as it, as it rolled along. And, and, you know, when I first visited Jean and Harlow in 1990, you know, I never imagined it would be anything. And then it ended up being, you know, a kind of a career making project. And, and, you know, it, it's definitely for me something that I still continue to do now, nothing at that scale, but I do, you know, collect images, like in different ways. Like in, in the late 2010s, I started um, taking street photography with my daughter's iPhone with the Hipstamatic app. And then I got, you know, at the time I had a Blackberry with the Tribune. So I didn't have an iPhone. So I had to borrow my daughter's and I bought my own iPhone. So then ever since then, I've been doing iPhone street photography and that turned into my second book, which is called shooting from the hip, which is a collection of black and white street photography images from around America. And, you know, and, and the images I'm collecting now, I've been doing the same style photography at the Oakland Coliseum, which is this kind of old, decrepit um, baseball stadium the Oakland A's play at. And so since 2014, I've been collecting images. Every game I go to, I will I will take a certain amount of images or I'll just go and photograph the entire game. And and so that, I hope, will be a book someday. And, and then I also, in the past two years, I've started doing um, kind of fine art photography, slow shutter speed ocean images um and you know i call that the pacific series because it's all the pacific ocean so at some point i hope that's another book so it's just something where you know i have my day job at the newspaper which i love but it's weird in my career if you ask most people you know what what do you know of scott Strazanti's work they're like oh common ground and then they would be like oh he does street photography and stuff And, and 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 really none of that it was from you know my newspapers it was all kind of things that I've kind of you know decided to to pursue and and yeah they they know I work at newspapers and I have some quality of work that they enjoy but but it's not what jumps them first and so you know I've always you know for some reason you know decided to like not only have it be a career but also to be my hobby and also to just kind of have fun with it and and my outlet has always been you know you know putting things on Instagram now or Twitter or Facebook and and you know and that's been a, just a great um, you know kind of evolution of, of sharing a photography but but still at the end of it, it kind of seems like all my personal work always is pointing towards doing a book and and, and it's so easy nowadays to do a book. Um, you know common ground I made a lot of money on the Kickstarter, so we did 3,000 copies which, was probably way too many and then when i did the shooting from the hip book um i did a pre-sale online and and the pre-sale paid for a thousand books and so um my publisher in chicago warren winter you know he was fabulous you know he he did everything he, you know he found the, the printer in hong kong and he you know took care of all the design and everything and and things like that and and i think he's kind of been struggling in the pandemic and so his I don't think his production business is doing too well or his publishing business. So the next books I do, I'm not sure if Warren will be able to do them. Um, so I'm just going to have to kind of find another way to do them, but you know, they'll get done at some point, even if they're just a, a run of a hundred, you know, yeah. because it's just kind of the process of it. I, I enjoy. And it's something that, you know, I continue to do. So, so, so we'll see how that goes. But, you know, once again, I, I tell young photographers, old photographers, whatever, if they want to do a book, you know, that people really enjoy, especially if you're a young photographer, all you really have to do is, you know, say you live in a small town or a big town. Just go and take photographs of one block or, or, or just do the front of stores or something and then make prints of these and put them away for 30 years and then bring it back out. And people be like, these are amazing. You know, it's like because <laughs> now I'll see photos from the 70s and it doesn't matter how bad they are as a photograph. Yes. They'll be like, that's They're amazing. Compelling. Look at that. Yeah. Look at that. So it's like time really makes a way of improving all photographs. And, and I wish, you know, there were a lot of photographs that I never made when I was younger that I should have made and and would have been amazing to have, or I just threw them in the garbage, you know, but it's, uh, you know, you know, you kind of think, Oh my God, I'm, I'm a amateur photographer. I can never have a book. I could never do a project anyone would be interested in. And it's not true. It's like, you know, follow your own voice, follow what interests you, Um, Because if it excites you, it'll excite other people and and it doesn't have to be anything grand or big or it doesn't have to be following, you know, cattle farmers for eight years, you know, it could just be, you know, just what you see in your daily life and, um, but you have to be very kind of organized with it, you have to, you know, photograph it and, and you know, edit it, and but do it over time and it'll evolve and get better. Um, you know, like my Pacific series, um, Fine Art Photography, is evolving as I speak. You know, I first did it in January 19, January 2019, and I, you know, long lens, slow shutter speed photography of just waves, and I was just concentrating on the waves and the patterns and the impressionistic movement of them. And then in the past year, I've started incorporating surfers and people on the beach into it. And then now I've kind of gone this right turn where I've started to do the same slow shutter speed thing at sporting events. I was at the Pebble Beach Pro-Am yesterday, I mean, on Sunday, and I was at a Golden State Warriors game last night and I started playing around with doing slow shutter speed. So, you know, so that'll be another kind of side project I'll just kind of work on over the next year and kind of collect and, and just see where it goes and maybe it'll turn into nothing. But, but for me, it's just, you know, being someone who's, you know, four decades into this profession, I continue to want to do things that excite me and, and you know, kind of still have an evolution and not, you know, just be shooting the same photos I for year after year after year, which, could be successful but for me it doesn't interest me to just kind of become a caricature myself i just want to keep you know expanding and, and and trying new things and different things and you know i just i'm as excited about photography now as i was when when i first got my first job at the daily Met.
0: so many things to unpack there love how <laughs> you broke down obviously i mean the entire progression of how common ground came to be and then obviously there at the end talking about you know how to even start your own uh long-term project because that's something that i've always had an affinity towards these long-term projects uh just a few about a month ago i guess my mom sent me she was she lives in arizona currently and she sent me a bunch of old photographs that she had in a box and i mean some of them were from my parents' wedding. Uh, you know, they got married in the seventies, and I remember looking at those photos and thinking to myself, there was nothing fancy about these photos when they were taken. They were just simply uh you know, here's what's happening in front of my camera." but today, I mean it's it's the it's the clothing, it's the cars, it's right. you know how people look that make those photos so interesting. and I love that perspective because there's so many times that you know we go to. Start a long-term project in a month in or two months in, it feels like, where's this going? You know, like right. like am I right. doing the right thing? Am I doing the wrong thing? Uh, so I appreciate you sharing some ideas. You know, even just on your own block, photographing storefronts, uh, and who knows what it could turn into. So you don't even have to have like, like an amazing. Story, because you don't know how it's going to end anyway. So you yeah. might as well just start with something. Does that sound about right?
1: Yeah, exactly. Like, you, you could even do something like, you know, photograph your kid's bedroom once a year. You know, from <laughs> when they were born to, like, when they're 30 or 40. You know, and wouldn't that be amazing just to see, you know, every year. You know, or even just photograph the inside, the, the door open of your refrigerator once a year over a 30 <laughs> or 40 year span. You know, it's like just things that you know you're 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 so used to and and i think that's a struggle sometimes too is that you get so used to your surroundings that they don't become interesting anymore and that has been something has been a challenge in the past year with the pandemic is that so many things have changed and you we've kind of adapted them to as normal like last night i was looking at the at the warriors game and all of a sudden you know, just looking at everyone with a mask on on the bench of a, a basketball game which is so weird and You know, like I did a quick little photo story at the end of last year on on the not a photo story, it was an essay, just on the social distancing six foot signs that are being placed on sidewalks around San Francisco. And so I spent two days. I just walked around and and every single social distancing thing was different. You know, some of them were just a piece of blue tape. Some of them were very decorative. Some had a, you know, it said Merry Christmas with a, a reindeer on of it. Some of them were just like words in, in tape, you know, and, and, you know, Cartier had these gold leaf paws, cat paws, wow. you know, and, <laughs> and so just over two days, I collected like 40 different, um, you know, of these social distancing things. And I've been walking by them for months and months and months and months and just totally ignoring them. And all of a sudden, one day, I'm like, wait, I should document this. This is interesting. This is different. This in two years, these might not exist anymore. And and so just kind of, you know, we adapt so quickly and we adjust to our surroundings that things that were unique are not unique anymore. And so just (laughs) to kind of keep that, you know, that wonder about daily life and and just kind of noticing things and you know it's so you know just there's so many things that you can do that would be just so simple but you just you never think of doing them and i'm the same way you know there are a lot of things that i'm like oh duh i'll see someone do come up with an idea and i'm like that's so brilliant and so (laughs) simple why didn't i think of that and so it's like, just kind of, you know, and you don't have to, like, I'm always constantly trying to churn them out. But, you know, just, you know, if, if there's not a daily pressure to work at a newspaper, it's like, you know, you really don't need a whole bunch of them. And and I, I think turning the camera on your family is the, the easiest place to start. And, you know, and even turning on yourself if you wanted. You know, I've seen, you know, people do... You know a photo of themselves once a day for an entire year and just seeing a slideshow of 365 images of how a person changes in a year is just it's just amazing you know i just you know i think thematically when i do a photo essay i like there always has to be one element that is the same so like if you're going to do a portrait series the, the background background the background should be exactly the same or you shoot it with the same lens and exposure and f stop and shutter speed you know, there's there's got to be something thematically holding it together and then there has to be a difference to it um, like for me I like doing I did a photo essay on liberty tax waivers I don't know if they have <laughs> I those saw this. You know? right and yeah. so so basically the, the cool thing was I don't know where these people get their outfits but they're all kind of <laughs> different they're not the same and yeah. so like you know the, This is a Statue of Liberty. And I did it in 2010 in Chicago. And, you know, one person was, you know, Statue of Liberty, you know, you know, anyways, it's hard to describe a photograph in words. But anyways, but the thing was, I had like 15 of them. They were the same, but they were each of them were different. And and some of them were wildly different, um, you know, and, and so it's just kind of, you know, for me that interests me is like variations on a theme and and repetition is you know this is kind of the same thing in a photograph where if you photograph one person it's mildly interesting if you photograph identical twins somehow that's amazing wow look at those identical twins that's amazing um but if you just photograph one of those twins eh, it's a person you know and so like repetition is something that i always look for in photography and i think is really fascinating um and and, and is really a a good way to make a compelling image is you know you know if you can have one of something two is better you know so it's you know it's, it's like there's so many little tricks of the trade that you learn after a while and and, and just kind of, you know, I've been doing this for so long that I walk into a room for a photo assignment and I'm like, OK, where's the good photograph going to be? And I could OK, I can go over here, you know, and over here. I know this is going to work and this is going to work. And if I use this lens, that's going to work. But then the way to elevate to a great photo is some sort of serendipity, something a moment happens or the light is especially great or or there is a great moment and great light, you know. And so, you know, it, it's definitely you know always kind of a puzzle piece you know i i can always go make a good photograph but it's going to take something that happens out of my control to to elevate it to a great photograph and um you know and and i you know i if i make one great photograph a year i'm I'm pleased you know and so that's that's (laughs) my goal
0: (laughs) (laughs) well it seems uh by the list of your accomplishments you make more than just one great photograph a year which uh uh, you know, I'm very thankful for. Uh, but going back to long-term projects, one of the questions that I had while going through the book and hearing you talk right there, you know, obviously you showed up your your assignment to photograph Harlow and Jean. It ended on a day that their house was tore down. But when you went back to Cinnamon Court to photograph, you know, the, the, the new lives that were living here on the suburbs or in this in this new subdivision wh- when when do you know that it's over like when do you know that you captured the story when do you know that you have enough
1: um i think you get to a point where you know it's like 95% complete you know and you kind of it, you look at it and you're like okay this this tells a story this you know you're always looking for some sort of arc you know a, a beginning a middle and an end Um, this great photographer Carrie Renee Hall once um, explained it to me. She said, you know, when you do a photo story, you basically want this, you want a cat climbs up a tree, someone shakes the tree and the cat gets out of the tree. You know, I don't know like why that, that resonated with me, but it just seemed like that was like the three acts of, you know, you want, you know, something happening, attention, and then a release of that tension. And um, you know, for me, For common ground, you know, it it did get to a point where I'm like, okay, this, you know, this is done. And I think it was 14 years. um, It was 2008, 2009. That's when it kind of was 95% done. But since then, I've continued to photograph. Um, I've gone back and visited them many times and have made many more diptychs. And um, unfortunately, Ed and Amanda have now divorced. And so Amanda's living in the house with the triplets. And I think maybe Ben might be living there now. I haven't photographed there in a year or so. Um, But Amanda told me that when the kids, the triplets graduate high school, which will be, I think, a year from June, she's going to move out of the house. So um, I'm going to go back and and photograph them getting ready to move out of the house and then moving out of the house on the final day. And then it'll be done. It'll be 100 percent done. unless like a circus family moves into that house and you know or something but or you know but the thing is that like that'll be the hard ending for me because Mm -hmm. then it'll you know and then I'll have so many pairings of the Grabenhofer family moving leaving the house with the Cagwins leaving their house and then I'm I'm not sure what I'm going to do with these photographs you know I don't I'll, I'll put them on social media Um, I don't really have an interest in doing another book on it, Um, but we'll see, you know, I'll I'll cross that bridge when I get to it. But um, and I think this time around, what I might do is try to apply for some grants to finish the project. Um, And and I'm not sure, you know, I have such a body of work on it. It should I should be able to get a grant somewhere to go and, and photograph it for the final time to fly back to Chicago and spend a week there. Um, but we'll, we'll see. Um, but next time I go visit, I have to I have to go there sometime soon. It's been it's been too long before I, since I photographed there, and you know. So it, it's it, it's interesting. Um, but yeah, it it is a good question. Like sometimes you don't know when something is done, but it's kind of like a TV show, you know. When like Happy Days, when you know Fonzie jumped the shark, you know. It's like <laughs> it, it was such a famous thing. Like okay the show's done now you know there's they don't have to make any more happy days and you know and and it was funny it's like you know the fawns literally jumped a shark with his his motorcycle and that's where jumping the shark came from and you know so you get to a point where you're like yeah there's i'm not treading on any new ground here i'm just kind of creating the same images over and over again and and, you know, a lot of times when a story ends is because the newspaper publishes it and you kind of stop. And um, and that's one thing with the Cagwin story, because it was published in the Herald News. It was published in the Chicago Tribune. It was in Mother Jones magazine, you know, and so I was always finding new outlets but most stories I do it publishes in my newspaper and then I'm I'm finished with it and and the, the one of the the things about being a photojournalist especially when you do photo stories that is very difficult is that you come into someone's life and they trust you to photograph them and you spend you know a week or a month or eight years photographing them and then the story's over and then that's it you know and then like what do you do do you never see them again do you do you you know do you visit them you know when you have five ten twenty stories like this you can't continually stay in their lives because i've been invited to so many birthday parties and and things like that families i've photographed and i feel horrible saying well i i can't i'm busy um you know when you know they You know, they've given so much to me and I feel like, oh, God, you know, it's it's there's this kind of separation anxiety to it because it's a very intimate process to, you know, for someone to be photographed and to to kind of trust someone and and, you know, be in their home and things like that. And, you know, I've had a couple like really difficult things. Um, I think the most difficult one I ever dealt with was I photographed a young family family. in suburban Chicago, um, it was a a woman and a man, they were married. They had four young kids all under the age of six. And, and the dad was out jogging one day and he got hit by a car and was killed. And so, um, this happened like maybe three or four months before I met the family. And then the community had gotten together to have a big fundraiser for the family. So I was sent down to photograph, um, this family and the fundraiser and, um i walked into the house and the first thing i saw was this young girl like laying on the couch like this and a photo of her dad right next to her and so i walked in like the first thing i did was take a photo of that and um and then you know like most newspaper assignments it was like well what do you want me what do you want us to do you know Mm -hmm. and and you know, she's like, well, how about if we play a game? You know, so there's always this kind of in the beginning when you do an assignment, like the people you're photographing, they feel like they have to put on a show for you. Like they have to like, well, what can we do? Well, let's walk to the park. You know, so they'll do something that's not real just because they feel like they have to perform for you. So sure. anyway, so so I, I ended up photographing the family for maybe three or four hours and just like the Cagwin story. I knew there was more there. And so I, I, I asked them and then I asked my editors, well, can I continue to photograph this family until the one year anniversary of the husband's death? And um, everyone agreed. And so I then went and I started photographing this family and they were two young. Um, there was a, a boy who was six. I think um, the girl was five. I'm forgetting some of the names, which is so horrible. Um, the girl who was five. And then there were, two younger girls who were 3 and 2. And so when I first arrived, the, the two young girls, they would come and punch me and they would kick me and they were like really angry at me and you know. And then maybe the third or fourth visit they just started hugging me and they wouldn't let go and they just like were so attached to me.
0: Wait, wait, wait. wait hold on. <laughs> Were, yeah. were they kicking you because they felt like you were intruding in their lives? I or, don't, I don't, or,
1: well, I don't know. I don't know. Like, I, I imagine. No, no, no. I imagine there was like somehow they connected me with their dad and their dad left and their dad died. Oh, and maybe, maybe somehow I was some male proxy for that anger or whatever. I don't know. I'm just making that up. Okay. But then once I spent more time with them, then they became really attached to me. And so, when it got to be near that one-year anniversary of, you know, when I knew the story would be over, I started thinking, oh, I'm going to leave them. Like, mm. I'm going to be spending all this time with them. They got attached to me, and now I'm leaving them. You know, yeah. am I am I reinforcing to these little girls that men leave, you know, that you fall in love or you get attached to some man, and then oh they're going to leave? You know, and so, like, I'm making this all up in my head, and, and I know part of it might be true, part of it might not be true, but it's just like like it's, you know, for me, it just, ugh, it, it's just, it's just heavy on you. Yeah. It's really, it's really a weight. And, you know, and so, you know, the story ended up being just on the, the five-year-old girl it was called daddy's girl and just kind of focused on her. Cause she was the one that seemed most affected by, by the loss and stuff. And, um, and, but, um, you know, and uh, Alyssa Blanchett was the mom and, um, the names are coming back to me. This, this was probably 10 years ago um but then you know so I lost touch with the family and then like you know on Facebook you have those Facebook messages that you don't see they're like hidden messages because you're not a Facebook friend and sometimes you you, for eight months later you like see all these messages you know like dang it yeah right right (laughs) and so I went on there at one point like maybe two or three years after and like message from a woman a friend of the mom and saying that she'd had cancer and you know and like so and then I tried to reach out to someone and I don't like I don't know what happened I'm like so did the mom die and you know and like I couldn't like the phone number I had didn't work and I still don't know what happened and it's just like oh it just tears me up and so you know it's like something in photojournalism that you know you don't really think about just kind of those connections that you make and then then you're gone you know it's just you know but it's impossible to kind of stay connected with everyone and you know i have my own family and you know and now i moved to california and so it's you know it's definitely you know it's definitely a trade-off that you really kind of have to deal with and and you know it you know i only you know i don't know it's it's not like um like I, it's it's it, it really, I don't know. It's not like I, I don't think I need therapy for because I talk about it a lot. But you know, it, it's definitely something that you know you don't think of for journalists. You know, there's a lot of, um, you know, kind of PTSD from photographing wars and fires and things like that. But it's kind of that kind of separation you get from people that you spend a lot of time photographing. And you know, I feel guilty too about Jean Cagwin. You know, she's her, Harlow passed like um i think like five days before his 90th birthday Mm -hmm. and that was what would that be let me do quick math 19 years from so that was probably in 2013 and Mm -hmm. so Jean is living by herself in her home and i visited her a couple times but i haven't visited her since i moved to california you know and i you know i just feel horrible about that you know and but it's like you know, she lives in you know three hours south of Chicago, and I get back to Chicago. I'm busy visiting my family, and yeah, uh, and so it's hard to get down to see Gene, and and so yeah, so like I could probably sit here and name like ten, twelve, fifteen, twenty people that I'm like, oh shit, man, I feel horrible. I I've, I've lost contact with them, you know. I so think that we get the idea, you
0: know, that that part of being a photojournalist. First of all, I'm sure that you weren't taught this, you know, when you first started shooting that like, hey, this is going to be a heavy thing at times. Right but also to me what it sounds like is to be able to do this effectively you really have to have a lot of empathy to be able to tell somebody's story and i don't think that that i don't think that that is taught enough because i don't think that you can teach that right it, very often it seems like whenever you look at either street photography or you know documentary photography it's very much like here's the technicals of how you do it and here's what you look for but I I don't think I've ever heard of anybody share that side of the story before and wow I mean just myself hearing that I mean I feel heavy for that I can't imagine you know what it is that you have to go through so you know, thank you for sharing that. That's oh, you're
1: welcome. Because there, there's two types of photography. There's taking photographs and making photographs. You know, and when I do street photography, I'm taking photographs. I'm just walking down the street and I'm taking things. But when you know I do a long-term photo story, or you know, someone, you know, like you're making photographs. It's a collaborative effort, and you're not taking something. You're you're, you're part of the process, not the whole process. And 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 so it, you know, it, it's definitely. Um, you know something where, you know, I'm aware of that, and, and it's something that you know that's why I think at times I love shooting sports because I can just okay, I'm, here's a roster, here's the names and numbers. I just sit there and I just photograph sports. You know, I yeah. don't have to, I don't have to, you know, put myself out there, um, because you you know when you do a long term story, it, it's a two way street. You have to share your life for someone to share it back, and you know. You know, if, you, if you're someone who does a long-term story, my recommendations, and this is what I do all the time, is say I know I'm going to photograph someone multiple times. When I come in their house... I will sit on the floor when I talk to them. I'll sit on the floor because I want them to know they're above me. I want them to know that I'm at their service. That I'm not someone who's coming in to stand above them and take their photograph. I want to like both, you know, figuratively and literally be below them. And 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 so it's something where that's kind of the place I put myself. And then I share my life with them. And you know, you would think with like the Cagwin's or the Gravenhoffs, the photos I make, they're real moments, but throughout that process there's a conversation going on where you know the gene and harlow situation they both were hard of hearing so harlow would be like yelling something and gene would be like what and i'd be like oh this is what he said and then, then gene would yell back i'm like oh harlow she's at this you know and so you now it became this you'd be this intermediary <laughs> intermediary but at the same time you're taking photographs and you know and, and so there is no such thing as fly on the wall like i'm changing reality just by being there and so you have to kind of Realize, well, what photos am I making that I change reality so much that they're no, more, no longer reality? And which mm-hmm. one is like, well, I'm there and this represents. A reality that probably would have happened if I wasn't here you know and, and so you know I can go round and round about the ethics of of photojournalism and, and every photo's a lie type of thing you know but at some point if you're going to do that you just have to quit because you know as a photographer unless you're you know in a duck blind and no one knows you're photographing them which is what street photography is kind of at times mm-hmm. you know you're, you're, you're not really photographing reality. And I think, you know, to kind of go to street photography, the reason I like that is because I know, you know, I photograph literally shooting from the hip. I have my camera at my waist and I'm photographing as I walk. And so people don't know they're being photographed and I'm photographing them in a public place, but I'm also photographing them without their consent. And I know that there's some issues with that and that can be kind of creepy and weird. Um, but, for me, it's the, the purest photography I do because people are not changing what they're doing for me. I'm photographing something that's happening, you know, that would happen if I hadn't walked past, and and you know that's why I think I've really been, you know, I went through this phase for five, six, seven years where everything was street photography because it was so pure and it was so real and it was not affected by myself and I was able to make images you know, that I felt, you know, at times where my newspaper work is a little tainted by my presence, that street photography is, is the realest work I, I ever do. And, and so, you know, I've kind of, you know, I do street photography occasionally, but it's kind of run its course now. It's like, you know, I still enjoy doing it, but it's no longer an obsession. You know, I've moved on to other things. And so, you know, it, it definitely, you know, things kind of ebb and flow in my creative space. And, and, you know, I, I guess when, when, you know, something, is kind of you know it's almost like the complete thought you're talking about or when do you know something is done it's kind of the same thing with the genres that I'm interested in and and I'm with the fine art photography I'm doing now I assume at some point in five six ten years I'll kind of move on to something else you know who knows you know so but you know I love photography so much it's such a ex- place for me to express my creativity and um i'm just so glad that i stumbled into it and somehow it became a career because if i was a tire dealer that would not have been my my ideal life i tell you that much so you know i definitely would have been a weekend warrior jumping out of planes or something because you know it's like you know the career i have it has been exciting it's made me maybe boring on my weekends when i'm not working but but it definitely has been an amazing life
0: Scott, I don't know how to end it any better than that. I I could listen to you talk all day, but I know that you have a yoga class coming up, and I don't <laughs> want to keep you uh, any longer than you know than I already have. Um, I want to say thank you for your time today. Uh, you've been very gracious with it. Uh, you know the experience that you have. I can't thank you enough for sharing it with myself and the listeners. Uh, before I let you go, can you let listeners know where they can find out more about you and pick up a copy of your book, Common Ground and Shooting From the Hip?
1: Sure. It's a little complicated because my publisher um, last year kind of downsized. So he just delivered two pallets of book to me in California. So I had two <laughs> pallets of books in my driveway at some point. And um, I do have websites for my books, but those go to my publisher. And I've heard lately that, you know, it's totally out of my control. I've heard people say that they haven't been able to get a book. So what you need to do is a little bit of work. Um, you can find me um, on Facebook or Twitter um, or Instagram. Everything is at Scott Strazanti. Um, and the, the books, Common Ground, retail for fifty, and I think shooting hip is 70 but I've been selling them for $20 each or $35 as a pair and if you can um, reach out to me I've just been having people Venmo me money or PayPal me um, Venmo is the same thing at Scott Strasanti. Um so it's probably best to just kind of send me a direct message on Instagram or Facebook or something and I can kind of work, walk work you through the process and then I'll just send you the books right away and if the United States Postal Service delivers them they will get
0: you so yeah you know. <laughs> yeah mine mine were a few days late but i'm gonna <laughs> i'm gonna give them the benefit of the doubt with all the snow that we've been getting uh, but i'm gonna put information for you know of course i'm gonna post your because I, I saw your instagram photo and that's how i found to uh to reach out to you on paypal i'm gonna find that photo i'm gonna put it in the show notes oh, if anybody's perfect. interested uh and they should because i mean these books are beautiful and it is just so clear how much work and how much effort uh, you have put into them and it just shines through in in all of your work. What I loved in this interview about uh, uh, Scott talking with Scott is just that there are so many things that you know all we right. have a all base right, level kind of knowledge of like yeah I understand how photojournalism works you go out you capture a story like I get it you know I understand how uh, you know filmmaking works you you have an idea you you draft it up you 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 shoot it, you edit it, you share it, right? I have an idea of how wedding photography works. Uh, you know, a couple needs photos of their wedding day. You take photos uh, them getting ready, the ceremony, the party. You go home, you edit the photos, and then, you know, that's it. That, like, that's – these are very, like, very high-level overviews of how something works. But then somebody like Scott comes in with the knowledge and the experience that he has just from years of doing this, right? comes in and just shares those details with you that just go deeper and deeper and deeper and deeper into your understanding of what you thought photojournalism was, what you thought a long-term project was, and, um, I mean, just just shares it with so much clarity and, um, I was going to say excitement, but, you know, that's kind of a hard word I suppose to use, like, I get very excited about these things, and I can tell that he's very excited about these things because he's passionate about it. You know, he's been doing it for, for uh, a long time. I think that one of my biggest takeaways from from, from this interview with Scott is really taking to heart the, the interaction, the power, the connection – that you are making with those who you're photographing no matter what it is whether it is um you know a, a uh you know as scott shares in here the the loss of a family member there at the end with all the children um or if it's you know the happiest day of somebody's life on their on their wedding day you know we have to take into account how we are photographing real people and they have real emotions and what we are doing for them has real consequences, whether it be good or bad, and it just kind of brings another level of awareness to uh to photography to this world that that we all love, to this craft that we that we truly enjoy and um, you know want to spend more time in and I think that that has a lot to do with um, just being a better human you know once again, just understand that we are working with people and not to take photography so seriously sometimes uh, and that a lot of it is just simply human connection and that is all that we are working towards. So I really hope that you loved this interview with Scott as much as I did. I would love to hear your biggest takeaway for this interview um by you know you heading over to the beginner photography podcast community and sharing it with me there also. Uh, You know, you obviously heard us talk about Scott's book Common Ground and also shooting from the hip a little bit there. He uh, I posted in the show notes of this episode, the link to the Instagram post where he shares details uh, about where to find his book, where to buy his book. Uh, And I can tell you, I mean, I have my copies right here. I got "Shooting from the Hip" and then uh, "Common Ground" as well. And these are these books are just—I mean—they're aces. Like they're 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 fantastic. The quality of them is great, uh, and the uh, you know words that Scott puts into these books uh, just really deepens the understanding once again of 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 just the power of photography. So, if you want to check those out again, like. I mean, such a deal on these books, honestly. Uh, when I saw it for the first time, I could, not, I could not believe it. And I'm very happy that I took Scott up on his offer. So if you want to do so as well, head over to the show notes of this episode. Um, by If you're just in Apple Podcasts, you can swipe up. You'll find it there. There should be a link. It'll take you to the actual show notes on the website where you'll be able to see the Instagram post. Uh, and then get in contact with Scott from there and grab yourself a copy of his books. So that is it for this week. Um, until next week, I want you to keep shooting. I want you to stay safe. I'll talk to you soon.
1: Thank you for listening to the Beginner Photography Podcast. If you enjoy the show, consider leaving a review in iTunes. Keep shooting, and we'll see you next week. When I, when I saw you write that you had no interest in, in gear talk, I was like, yes, this is my, topic. This is my guy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Well, it's—I uh, mean, you know—it's—it's it's photographers want to talk about that all the time, and it—it it really does mean nothing. Um, I had one personal question for you. Uh, it's not a personal question. It's—it's it, it's about common ground, and it's about um, um, when when doing a long term project, you didn't know when you first started, you know, that it was going to turn into what it is. Uh, if you could go back in time, is there one photo that you would grab of Harlow and Jean on the farm to? complete the story or better tell the story knowing what it was going to turn into. Oh
1: yeah. Like I should have mentioned this. There are so many kind of since I photographed Jean and Harlow on my free time, just on Mondays, like I never photographed them on Christmas. I never photographed them, you know, on someone's birthday. And I I only went there on Mondays. And so it was like, whatever happened on Mondays, you know, there was a different, you know, of course near the end, I kind of adapted to what they were doing, but like, you know, I have all these photos from the subdivision of all these parties and all this kind of, you know, holiday stuff. And, and the Cagwins is just, like, this straightforward, like, farm stuff, you know. And and it, it's, like, I wish I was, like, since I didn't really have any idea what it would be eventually. It didn't matter at the time. But, but I just wish I would have made more of an effort to at least spend one Christmas with them or, you know, one birthday or, you know, it, it was just you know it just kind of it's weird like i don't know what i you know of course when i started i really didn't have any idea of what i was doing really um but yeah i wish i could just go back and photograph more different moments because you know you would think that they had this boring existence where they just worked and worked and worked which they did pretty (laughs) much 95 percent of the time but you know you know, like what, you know, did they, I, I don't even know, like they go on vacation or, you know, right. a oh, church? You know maybe they're at church. I don't know. It's been interesting, but it got to a point where, you know, the, the project, I just tried to keep it to photos on the, on the land, because it became the, about the land. So whenever they would leave the land, I really didn't really include any photographs, but um, yeah, I, I wish I could just go back and photograph them on one Christmas Eve or something. That would be great.